Welcome to Real Leaders Radio, bringing you the story behind the story of the most innovative, authentic leaders we know. And now, here's your host, Sue Heilbronner. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on Real Leaders Radio. We are incredibly lucky to have today one of the most dynamic, forceful, quick CEOs I've ever met. I'm joined today by Promise Filon. She's the CEO of Tap Influence, which you'll hear more about. And we just couldn't be more fortunate to have somebody join us and just share an incredible backstory of entrepreneurship. Thanks for joining us, Promise. Good morning. Thank you. So the way we start out this podcast is we ask the leader just to share a three-minute life story of key moments in their entrepreneurial journey. Wow. Okay. I was not prepared for that. So three minutes. Um, I don't know. I've been I've been getting ready for Boulder Startup Week, and one of the parts of, of um, the presentation I'm doing is, is about the people who've had the biggest impact. And so um, there are three people, and you know I had to dig deep and kind of reflect on. I can only do three, <laughs> so um, there are three people. So one is, and, and I, I categorize these, so you may hear this again. One is um, Bill Campbell, actually, who recently passed away, the former CEO of Intuit, former head of marketing for Apple, and he was a mentor. And I define a mentor as someone who, you know, kind of objectively helps you identify your strengths and kind of, you know, gives you guidance and wisdom. Um, the second is a woman named Barbara Britton. So I met her in 1997 when I was um, extremely young and um, had just gotten into um, business school. And so she was my business school, uh, quote unquote, mentor, but she became a champion. And a champion is different than a mentor. A champion is someone who really helps propel your career. So they invest, they tell you when you're stupid as shit. They give you real guidance and they are actively promoting you um, and helping you get to where you want to go professionally. So different than the mentor who's giving you their wisdom, a champion, someone who's actually trying to propel you in your career. So that was Barbara. And lastly is a gentleman named Stephen Nix. And so Stephen I met in 2003. I built a tiny little one-man shop uh, consulting company, and he and I turned that into um, an extremely profitable 300% average year-over-year growth um, technology company. And what I learned from him is he's a partner, different than a mentor. A partner is part of the business with you, but is a massive complement to your strengths. And so they help you... um, you know, sort of do what you're great at and focus on what you're great at. And so he was phenomenal at that. So in terms of my story, I feel like those three people had a pretty significant impact. You know, Bill helped me believe that there's no reason why I couldn't do what I wanted to do as a leader and as as a tech entrepreneur. Um, Barbara is the reason why I'm in tech. She got me, you know, my first job in tech at BEA Systems in 1998 as an intern. And she's the one who helped me figure out how to budget (laughs) so that I could afford to have more equity than, uh, than comp. And Steven and I, um, you know, he gave me the confidence that you can actually build a business with other people and you can rely on other folks' strengths. Um, kind of in the same way that you and Elizabeth do. You're great compliments. And so uh, I'm not sure that answers the three-minute question, but I feel like those three people had a pretty significant impact on my life professionally. 
I love that answer, and I love those categories. One of the questions I get a lot from sure. young people, meaning you know people of any age, is <laughs> how how do you get a mentor? I think people know that they need mentors, and they think, and I'm sure you've been asked this. I know I've been asked this. Sure. Hey Sue, I'm looking for a mentor. Will you be my mentor? I think there's a little kids book where the little bird walking around. Will you be my mother? Uh, sort of like that. So, how, what do you think the secrets are for folks early in their career to build these? kind of folks in their life? Yeah, it's a great question. So so mentor, right, this is a person who's giving you wisdom and advice. And so what do they want in exchange for that? They want two things. They want association. So you have to already be on the way to kicking ass, right? So I like that. That's right? great. You got to be on your way. And that person has to be able to see where you're headed. So part of it is your job to make really clear, here's who I want to be. And that has to be a matchup with who they are or who they um, have been. So I think that's one. Two is that they want association, but they also want people who are coachable. The worst thing for a mentor is for someone to go, oh, that's great, and go do the exact opposite every single time. And so um, you know, part of it is being coachable and being able to um, act on the, the collective wisdom of that mentor and their experience. But I think the last thing, it's like freaking simple. Um, so my dad was a Marine which explains a lot about my personality and like, <laughs> right. But he always said, if you're on time, you're five minutes late. And so what, what I try to do with mentors is I become extremely respectful of their time. So before we, you know, if we're going to have a call at eight o'clock, I send, you know, these are the three things I want to cover. And then I do my own time check. Hey, Bill, we're 10 minutes in. We've got 20 more minutes. Can we go five minutes or two minutes over? So I think respecting their time, respecting their reputation is important. And so I, I think a lot about for, for people looking for mentors, how do you respect that person's time? Also, how do you be coachable? And then how, do you, how are you a great asset for them to be associated with? So those are the three things that I think of. Promise, I have a feeling you're living some of your life is a little bit similar in this one regard, which is I imagine we both get asked often to play that role of mentor, to play that role of coach, to have our brains picked, uh, to be on panels. They're just... Boy, we're, we're both hoping there are way more women and uh, <laughs> diverse leaders in the world, and we're not quite there yet. Amen. Now, I personally feel a really high degree of pressure to show up when I'm asked, and I also really like to play golf and work on the companies that I'm trying to grow. How do you balance that in your life? Wow, um, that's a really difficult question. I mean, there's, there is no model for this. So here's when I don't speak. If someone says, I need this from you, I need this from you. But if my, if my company in the moment is in either um, kind of focus mode or in crisis, which companies are, <laughs> right, on a, on a pretty regular basis, I don't dilute my efforts here. If my family is is in you know any kind of state of like needing me more than, than I needed here or externally, then I don't. So, so those are the two times where I'm just like, I can't. Right. And so I won't break commitments, but if I need to be here or at home, those two things are going to come first. But when I when I love being out there is kind of in those moments where you need help reflecting. So so that's when I I make an effort to be more external is when that process allows me or gives me the ability to like sit down and, and figure some shit out on my own. Right. So it's a forcing function. 
I love that point. We're both, I think, speaking today at Boulder Startup Week, and I find right. it, it performs exactly that function for me as well. I learn as much as just preparing and doing these talks as I do and lots of other things. Okay, I want to switch gears for a second. Sure. So here you are in Boulder. Yeah. You've lived on both coasts and yeah. been successful on both coasts. What's it like being in what is relatively, you know, a medium-sized pond compared to the other ponds you've played in? Yeah, and, and I'll be honest, I, I struggle. No, I, I don't want you to. Okay, no, come no. on. Yeah. <laughs> Just shine me on, please. <laughs> I go back and forth. Um, there's, there's part of me that when I go back to the valley, like, and I'm stuck in traffic, it's freaking exhilarating, right? Because I, I know that people are going and doing really interesting things, you know, right? They're not on the they're road. They're going slowly, but they're going to do things They're going that are to do things that are interesting. And I miss the diversity. I miss oh, one of the last times I was in the Valley, and hopefully this is okay to talk about. Uh, my husband and I were, we had just sold our house, and we were walking around downtown San Jose where we lived. And I heard the salsa music. And you know, I, I used to be a competitive dancer, and I didn't do salsa, but I love salsa. And there was salsa at the park. It was so like, wow. Like we danced for three hours and we laughed and we ate margarita, we drank margaritas and we met people. And I miss that part of the Bay Area because when you get so many diverse people together, they're all fighting to like relive their culture. And so I miss that. Um, I also miss the business culture. But what what I'm finding I'm loving about Boulder, and, and this is where, you know, I'm figuring some things out sort of how I'm going to do Boulder is there's a part of the maverick in me that wants to be like, okay, I want to do something in Boulder that's never been done before. Hmm. And, you know, that is, that is coming to the fore is, you know, I don't plan to go back to the Valley. I've got an office there. You know, I visit regularly every other week. What is this thing you think? I mean, you may still be working through it. You got to talk today, so you work through more of it today. But right. what is this thing you think that has never been done here? Um, so I don't know that this pond is ever going to be huge, but I think it can attract a certain type of professional. So, so here's and, and again, if this is not where you want to go, it attracted you, so I'm interested in your okay. thoughts on this. So, so here, here's 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 a concept to play with. In the valley, there's become an archetype of who gets what, what opportunities, who gets what venture money, who gets what, and I wonder if that profile, that archetype, is either dated or needs to be revisited. What I think about is there's nothing conventional about Boulder, right? So. Can, can there be a different archetype or an anti-archetype that gets welcomed here? I, I mean, I think it's already happening. That, I've okay. never thought of it that way. Yeah. But it's such a great point. Like the rubrics just are not as old. Right. And they're not as fixed. And, you know, all these articles that talk about this place being a great place. Let's just take, for example, for female CEOs to grow companies. Sure. Foundry's last investments have been heavily weighted towards female leaders. Right on. You just raised a fantastic round Thank for you. Tap Influence. I know that that was a national round as opposed to a Boulder-centric round. But I love the idea that things are more fluid here and that we can create an impact that will be enduring in terms of setting really much looser structures to go forward. Much looser structures, but also what about the same results? Like what about building 
billion dollar companies in Boulder in ways that no one else is doing it. Like the Valley has a self-perpetuating cycle and that perpetuating cycle doesn't allow a lot of experimentation of these different rubrics or archetypes. And so when I think about Boulder, I think, you know, do I want to come here and build a company and then go back to the Valley and build one? So these are my options, right? Go make Tap Influence more successful than it's been, have a massive exit or do whatever the company needs its next step to be. And then go back to the valley because th- th- there's a strong temptation, right? The second is do it somewhere else nationally because there's a ton of markets that I, I'm now aware of that honestly I was not aware of before. I would fly from San Francisco to New York and look at all the shit in between and be like, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Or not. But now my investor is from Atlanta, Georgia, my lead investor. Huh. So. There's this massive country in between these two coasts, right? Um, but where I think there could be interesting in- opportunity is to build a big company that looks nothing like big companies in the Valley. So as you think about your experience having been here, how long has it been? A year and a half? It's been a year and two months. Okay, great. I was close. Do you feel like you already have more liberty to sort of create a version of yourself and a version of this company in an ecosystem that's a little more fluid? Huh. Not yet. I think Boulder's got its own rigidity around um, startup culture. And some of it I really like. And, and I'm, I'm figuring out how to incorporate. Um, but but it, takes a, it takes a bit of time to sort of figure out how you're going to roll. And the focus I've had for the last year and two months has been growth, scale, and and talent. And so this next year is going to be about cementing and stabilizing that. Got it. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about Tap Influence. We haven't sure. talked about it yet. Just what I'd like to talk about is tell, tell everyone who's listening, what is Tap Influence? And the second thing is, how has the vision for Tap Influence shifted as you came in partnership with the founders who created the company five, six years ago, I think? Yep, that's right. Great. That's right. I mean, the problem that we solve is that, you know, and I, I won't give an elevator pitch because I don't need to, right? But... Um, most brands are ignored by consumers. We don't we don't really consume television. I don't know about you, but when was the last time you sat and watched scheduled television with commercials? Um, we don't read or look at banner ads online. And so you've got television and digital, which, which are the major parts of most brands' budgets, billions and trillions of dollars. Most people are just not listening. And so our mission is to help brands get heard by consumers. And we do that by having other consumers create content on the behalf of those brands. So we have a marketplace and integrated technology that allows brands like, you know, Kraft, White Way Foods, which is here like locally, you know, major, major banks, major corporations use our, our technology to create social content that allows them to promote their products, but not in the traditional way of here's all my wares, but more of an authentic um, way. So we help brands get heard by consumers. And if I understand correctly, a a, a significant shift that's been happening at TAP over the last certainly year and a half is migrating more towards the SaaS model. Right. And what did you leave behind as you got Mm. to more of a scalable SaaS product? Right. So what's changed? Two things have changed. One is the business model. So we left behind the agency services approach, right? So we, we... and that's opened up a lot for us. It actually 10x our market because we were no longer reliant on 
on you know this, this sort of you know how the cost structure works with services businesses we could scale faster um, by allowing brands and agencies to build their businesses on our platform so we left that behind but the second part that's changed is you know we are now defining influencer more broadly and so it's not just a consumer or a blogger or whatnot. It's now about more about millennials, more around video, more around um, journalists, more types of influencers are coming into our platform and gaining prominence. So that's allowed us to work with brands in deeper ways. Um, we're also partnering with um, Nielsen, creating a tighter relationship between that content, those blogs, those videos, and actual revenue. So we can actually tie if someone watched a video or read a blog, what they did in the store that was different or what they bought online. One of the dichotomies that comes up for me in listening to you talk is that this entire notion of user-generated or influencer-generated right. content and viewpoint is based on something that I know is core to how you lead, and that's authenticity. So how do you hmm. balance the th seeming or potential polarity between scale and authenticity? Damn, that's a good one. Um, authenticity is risky, which is why it's so popular now, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's risky. And there's a lot. So there's a really great HBR um, podcast about are leaders too emotional? Mm. And it was great. And they cited things about Obama crying, about um, the school shooting. And, you know, when I think about authenticity, I think about, you know, initially you can just be an authentic person and everyone kind of jibes with you. What we're doing now is we're actually working on evolving our values to be more authentic. I think the only way you can scale authenticity is to have those values and those um, notions very clearly stated to reward behavior that is alignment aligned with those and then hire against hire against that leaders team members so when I think about scaling authenticity I think about from a company perspective it's the culture the stated values and how you reward them in our marketplace it's by having influencers be motivated by more than money Okay. And so that's how we're scaling it because we have influencers who will straight up push back on a brand and say, I'm not, I don't want to represent you because it affects how my followers see me. Okay. And you don't find yourselves in a situation of pushing your influencers out of their comfort zone on that front? We can't. Because the reason why an influencer is influential is because they are authentic. Good point. One of the things I was curious about is it seems like Snapchat is making real significant forays into bringing companies into that community. Yeah. And you may know Kelly Nyland, yeah. who was head of marketing at Sphero and is now head of marketing at Snapchat, which by itself is a big deal. So what do you, where is Snapchat going to fit in in terms of how sophisticated marketers think about their plans digitally? Well, that's a great question. I mean, we are actively building, um, I can't say exactly how many, but a ton of programs that are for Snapchat with our brands and, and agencies. It's a different, I mean, I think Snapchat is fully millennial and fully digitally native. Like anyone who's on Snapchat is most likely a millennial and or they're digital native and they just grew up in this, right? Gen Z, whatever we're gonna call this next, this next cohort. So it has two aspects that are different for brands, but are also the same. One is all the content is, um, it's ephemeral, right? It goes away. 
<laughs> so it forces that content to be meaningful. So it actually goes back to the Mad Men days. You know, it actually goes back to the importance of creative. That's a great point. Right. So you don't get to just buy eyeballs. You have to buy an experience. Yeah. Because then you couldn't watch the commercial 75 times on YouTube. Right. It, right. It is totally ephemeral. I, I had never thought of it that way. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is um, people you're creating content that will probably be parodied on Snapchat. <laughs> Snapchat loves a parody. And so, and a meme, right? So you have to be okay with the fact that people are going to tease your brand and, and that's actually good for branding. So there's, there's a lot of, of things that Snapchat does that actually brings us back to what's good about consumer marketing. I remember, I don't know, it must've been, I don't know, five or six years ago that Ford was really ahead on social media. Mm. They had, I forgot his, uh, I'll remember his name at some point, but the guy who really led the charge there. And I remember five years ago that it was just inconceivable that Ford was releasing new photographs of their new models ahead of the big auto show and that they were giving them to bloggers and journalists to just use without control over those photos. And that seemed revolutionary. And here we are now talking about major brands essentially creating content that at least will work well for parodies on a completely (laughs) rebellious, ephemeral social network. So what's really changed over the last few years in terms of how brands think of this and what is slower to change? Ah, amen. I mean, when I so when I when I talk to CEOs about influencer marketing, um, we don't talk about Snapchat. We don't talk about any of that stuff. We talk about because the CEO of, an, of the average Fortune 100 company is a 50 to 60 year old white male, and so what we talk about is is what is required to win the influencer arms race, hmm. and it's not it's not money. Huh. It's not money. So, okay. It's, it's deploying resources around the one thing, the two things that are really going to move the needle, which is you got to have a great product. Like if you think, if you look at where influencers like really get excited is when they love the product, they love the product. And so, yes, your marketing expenses are going to decrease, but your, your R and D might actually become more expensive. Because you're using those funds to create a, a product that people can actually believe in. The other thing is you have to be better at listening. So I talk about the, the two to one proportion. Yeah, <laughs> you've got yeah. two ears That's in my right. mouth. So um, you, as a leader, you unfortunately or fortunately, you've got to be more accessible. You don't have to be on Snapchat if you're the CEO of Ford. But you've got to have people inside of your organization that are listening and giving genuine and authentic responses because influencers are watching for that. And that actually creates influencers. So I'm a big fan of United Airlines. A huge fan. I had a terrible experience um, about six months ago. And so I tweeted it. Of course you did. I tweeted it, whatever. And I got the immediate kind of like canned response. And then I got um, an email and a DM from someone at United who was like, first line, I'm sorry. There you go. Right? And so it's changing who we have to be as brands. Okay, well, what's slower to change? I think what's slower to change is um, reliance on old media. Okay, yeah. It's shifting, but just unbelievably slowly, right? Uh, Yeah, and... and, um, 
and I, th I think the reason why, and companies like mine are accountable for this, we have to be able to tie it back to results in a way that matters. And so we're investing a ton of time right now in measurement and in partnerships with the right players to do that. But you're, you're right, it's, it's very slow to change. Well, but the irony is the articles that they're placing in monthly magazines or daily papers, those aren't trackable. So in a way, you know, you're sitting in right. the middle of Google AdWords, which is extremely expensive as an acquisition channel and fully theoretically fully tra trackable and you know a full page in the new york times which is not at all trackable and exorbitantly expensive but i see you playing in the middle of that space i think yeah that's, that's a great a great um frame but we've been doing print forever right it's fear right it's I mean, fear yeah you can't give up it's just real estate and it's it's incredibly scary and we all know that all marketing like that is exactly like crack so you just how, how do you explain to your board of directors that you gave up these slots and you gave up these strategies when you've been doing them for 50 years and here's right. where we are it's just too risky i think so i think this is an exciting time to be tap influence for exactly that reason awesome so you just raised a big round um, uh, the size of the round that's public? 14 million. Great. And what was, I've heard you talk about your challenges of fundraising. I actually, for those of you listening, always use you as an example. Oh, no. Because, you know, somebody, this just happened to me at a panel the other day. Someone stood up and said, I'm really, really struggling with trying to raise a million dollars and on and on. And I said, great. I said, how many people are in your pipeline as prospective investors? And she said, 10. And I said, when you come back to me and there are 200 people on that list and right you've on. done 175 of those meetings, then we'll have a conversation. Nice. Yeah. I think I got that from you, actually. You did. It, it sounds awesome coming out of your butt, right? <laughs> That's How much many, better I think, Remind me of your numbers, because I really... Boy, I really think this is an important point. You talk about one round in your career was five million. Do I have that right? Yeah. And how many investors, how many meetings did you do to get to five? Around 500. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, and another question that I get a lot on this point is when you get a no, do you go back? What's your thought on that? Wow, you know, um, such a great question. I don't know that there's a model. So, so here's, here's how I, I, and this has been consistent in the last, you know, several fundraises that I've been a part of or have, have, have mentored folks, is one no is not indicative of needing to like go back to working at HP or like, you know, like it, <laughs> it doesn't really mean that, um, if you get 10 no's is what I've, what we talked about is you need to go back and recalibrate. Like, is, is there something consistent across all of those? And if there's not keep going, but I've had 10 no's where, you know, in this last round fundraising, I got 10 no's that were almost exactly dead on. Huh. And so I took that back and I was like, okay, I need to, I need to, sort of take the proof from this and then incorporate it into either my business strategy or into my pitch or something's something has to be done but if you get one no it doesn't really mean anything you never know what that guy, if that person has any political power he may be doing a deal whatever but um when i think about going back to people who've said no there was an investor who uh the founders of tap influence had approached a guy that i is probably one of my favorite people in silicon valley his name is doug pepper and he was an early investor in Marketo. He's, we call him the Oracle of Martech. And um, when I joined TAP, I pinged him and I was like, hey, Doug, want to invest? No, that's not, no, I'm not going to invest. And then um, the founders at TAP had pitched him several times and he said no. And then he was in between leaving, um, he, was, he was just on the, on the heels of joining Shasta Ventures from Interwest. 
And I said, Doug, look, um, I'm just going to keep coming back to you because this guy, if he invests and asks the right questions, then we've done something. And so he wrote a personal check to be part of this round. So I guess there are some examples when going back makes sense, but I would say as a practice, move forward. Got it. Great. So a couple questions just about you and Mm -hmm. your leadership style. One of the questions I ask a lot, I am a a firm believer in this idea that we have all received one piece of feedback, among other feedback, for almost our entire life from our earliest memories. Hmm. And we have been working on it ever since then, and we work and work and work on it, and then just one of our days, it's not our best day, we get exactly that piece of feedback, which makes us want to jump out a window because we thought we had solved that one. Do you have one? Oh, only one? (laughs) Uh... Okay, three experiences I can go through them really quickly. I grew up in Dallas. We had the Mavericks. And I remember being in the car with my mother, and I, was, I did not fit in as a kid, like, for, for every possible reason. I was not one of the, the pretty girls. I was not one of the mean girls. I just was not, did not fit. And so I'm driving with her in the car, and, and I said, you know, I think I'm going to take a, a, develop, a coding course at school. And I said, but I'm gonna get a lot of slack for it because you know, I, you know, no, no girl is in this class but me. And she looked up at the sign, Dallas Mavericks, and she said, you know what a Maverick is? And I was like, yeah. And she said, and she says, what is it? And I was like, uh, I don't know, like a cowboy? <laughs> she said, it's a person who actually doesn't need a model in how they build their lives. And she said, you know, regardless of what's happening, that is your greatest power. And so I was like, hmm. And I've, I've never forgotten that. Like, there is power in just saying, I'm going to do this my way. And so every day I, I think about leadership style and, and company building. I'm just doing it the way that I think makes the most sense because I can bet on that. Okay. That's a wonderful story. I love that story. Uh, I, I, I keep thinking of Sarah Palin in that word. So I'm going to try to recreate that memory <laughs> with you and your mom as the definition of that phrase. <laughs> I really like it. I want to look at one piece of, let's call it negative or corrective oh. feedback. Yeah. Okay. Because I know you're all kinds of hot. I just am talking about the things that you really work on. All 2001. Right. I meet Ivan Kuhn. So Ivan Kuhn was the general manager of a division I was working in at BEA. And... Um, Today, he went on to, to run a division, enterprise division at Adobe. He built a billion, you know, very big business there. And then he was the CEO of a company called You Send It, which became Hightail, which competed with Box and other guys. And I, he was the GM of my division. He was probably in his 30s, and I was in my early 20s. And he said, you know, I was presenting some data. And he looked back and he said, huh, none of this makes sense to me. And we're, I'm in a room of, like, my peers and my boss and her boss and then him, 30 people. He just calls me out. And he said, you know, look, my advice to you is whenever you are trying to convince a room of people of of information that you get your shit together. Wow. And I remember people in the room were like, were throwing up in their mouths for me. And we were all like, oh dear God, (laughs) is this really happening? I was this high potential in the company. We had gone through this IPO. It was amazing. We'd all like gritted it out. And here comes this guy who just says, look, you you got like five Harvard MBAs. You got 10 Stanford MBAs in this room. Know your shit. Know your shit. And you know, every day, I don't think about that particular moment, but but the the remnants of that live on 
right? But it was great advice. He became a mentor of mine and an advisor. But um, there's always going to be someone who's thinking about where your logic fails. And it's important to, if you're going to present an idea or a concept, you have to truly believe it and have the data to back it up. Hmm. So as, with that as an early formative experience of what leadership looks like, what do you think the people that have reported to you over time, what would be the two most common themes they would say about the experience of working for you? Oof. Okay. Um, and I've asked this question, so... So you better be accurate better when you give accurate. the answer. You know, I think I attract a certain type of leader um, or professional who wants to work with me. I think it's someone who um, realizes that I see something bigger in them than they may see in themselves, Mm -hmm. and they want to be pushed to realize it. So that, I find, is kind of the gestalt of, like, all these experiences is that. Got it. I also have that gift slash curse. And I wonder... Well, yeah, I want to ask you about that. So... One of the challenges I find is sometimes I'm actually able to see their potential and they may not be ready to embrace it. Have you had that experience? Absolutely. I, I, I think, there's, an, I think there's, a, um, there's a word that was used once in describing, in describing this phenomenon. And I won't say the company, but one of their executives and I were, were talking, big successful company, and he said, we have a hangover of prior failures or, 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 or a, a girth of belief. And so you, you actually just have to either consistently bring that to the table. Hey, we're capable of more. You're capable of more. Um, but sometimes you can't replace that. Sometimes you can't resolve the hangover. And so what I have to realize as a leader, one of the things I work on is sometimes they're just never going to get it. And they might get it two years later. But um, it's not fair for me to continue to want something for someone that they don't want or can't realize in themselves. So I will fight for a long time. But I, mean, I think to your point, sometimes people in organizations just are stuck. Yeah. And okay. you got to let them work through that on their own time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a constant reminder. I'll, I'll call you every now and then and remind you of that because I forget it. So I'd appreciate a return call <laughs> now and then. Message. Yeah. It's just like, hey, by the way, totally. I call it I call it coaching the unwilling. You know, it's just I believe, I believe, I believe. Come on, come on, come on. Anyway. Uh, so the last thing I want to talk with you about is I think that we are in this strange phase of leadership. And it may be accelerated here in Boulder where, honestly, there's beauty everywhere you look, which is a generation that really cares about balancing their priorities along with work and sort of having full, rich, spiritually connected lives, for lack of better words, and also working incredibly hard to build great companies. How are you balancing that here at Tap Influence? You mean for myself? For your company, for your team. You know, if these guys... You know, the Wednesday ski break where they can go out and go skiing without traffic and just this sense that, you know, it's just not all about working as hard as you can and building a company with other people's money is incredibly friggin' hard. Totally. I mean, I I grew up in a different generation, right? Um, a work generation where it was about paying dues and it was about building something and building great skill. And so what what I cherish about you know the first four years of my career, which we're working at this company, BEA, we're massively successful, but um, I, did, I never felt entitled 
Hmm. Like I, I never, I never felt like, oh, I deserve a promotion or a raise. Like it was instilled, like you better work your ass off. And 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 as a result, I got all these amazing relationships and skills. And what what I want to do, and what I work to do with my leadership is, you know, coach your people on on how to get the outcomes. The best companies in the world, the hundred year companies, hmm. right? are the ones that have found a way to motivate people over long periods of time. That makes a lot of sense. So I read you as an incredible extrovert, at least when I've seen you in public. You have a big personality. You're funny as heck. What do you do when you're tired? Do you get tired? And if you do, what do you do? How do you get back Mm. to level? Yeah, so um, whenever I'm exhausted, it comes from a place of when my caloric output does not result in, you know, kind of an, an, equal, an equal and proportional result. And that tends to be when the unwilling kind of like, you're working up against something that's not gonna change. Mm. But working long hours and, and giving the company 100%, it, it actually feels really, it feels good, you know? So it doesn't tire you out. It doesn't tire me out, no. But, but I, I also, um, I guess in 2007, 2008, um, I, I made a, a personal commitment to change how I spend my time. I used to decompress by watching like four hours of television. I used to have three or four drinks a night. I, I did all these things that I didn't realize were actually dim- diminishing my own sort of personal competence and making, and making me tired. And so I realized I've got all these hours in the week I own those. Yeah, I'm gonna get enough sleep, spend time with my family. I'm gonna take care of my body, and I'm going to I'm gonna work at a, at, a, at a, an incredible clip. But I'm I'm gonna remove a lot of the things that are just even down to the relationships. Like I, I remember like taking inventory. I had relationships that were just sucking me dry, you know, discussing the same thing 20 years later, or 10 years later, or five years later. And so what what I want to do now, and what I what I work really hard on is is putting my energy around things that are really meaningful. And so the next phase of my life, I want to give back more and I want to find more ways to coach and mentor people who are non-traditional entrepreneurs. Like, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but that's the next phase. But I find that the more things I do that feel right and come from the right place, the more regenerative that is for my energy. And so that's, I guess that's a long answer to a very short question. That's great. Thanks. So for those of you paying attention, Promise Feelon is the real deal. And if you are approaching this world of startups and entrepreneurship from a place that feels non-traditional in a whole host of ways, watch Promise. And if you're traditional and just want to pay attention to a company that's got a great thing going, pay attention awesome. to Promise. Thank you so much Thank for joining so. us today. It's, it's just great. a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us at Real Leaders Radio. To hear other episodes of this podcast or learn more about Sue Heilbronner, visit us at realleadersradio.com.